wonder if there will be a day where I read an ad for a company right now and get paid for it. I'm not above it, but it's not the reason I got into podcasting. Now, if you want me to promote your company or business, hit me up in the comment section here on Podbeam or on the Facebook page. All my friends with Justin Flaskard, send me a private message and maybe we can work something out. I can promote your business sometime during the podcast. Now, I really started this podcast because I wanted to entertain you with life stories told by my friends and, well, myself, because I'm entertained by all the stories. And I have some you know, little stories to throw in in the mix while my friends are telling their stories. And it's been an amazing ride so far. I love doing each interview. I look forward to each interview each week. And sometimes I'm bummed when I don't have an interview set up for the week. So I make two interviews for the next week. So this week, there are two podcast interviews that came out with this episode, this one, and then I interviewed my friend Megan as well. Now, today's guest is John Dunham. Now, I had forgotten how much of an introvert John was, but his life that he has lived says nothing about being an introvert. Listening to him tell his life story and the path literally he took to finding out more about himself made me kind of jealous that I didn't do something similar when I was younger. I think a lot of us come into conflict with ourselves when we don't see ourselves doing the quote-unquote normal things of life, nine-to-five job, getting married, buying a house, having kids and such. Now, don't get me wrong. Those choices make people happy. But people are still very happy with their lives not doing the normal stuff. And, well, I support those people as well. Let's get into that interview. It's a little embarrassing, but <laughs> I was born in Indiana, uh, Richmond, Indiana. And but when we were when I was about one or two months old only, we moved to Laramie, Wyoming. And so I always consider myself a Wyoming boy. And that's where I grew up until I went away to college. So were your parents from Indiana or is that where they just decided to have you? Yeah, my dad was teaching at a university there in a small town. And he had just taken an appointment at, at the University of Wyoming. Um, so it was the university that brought us out to Wyoming for the first time. And, and did your parents meet in Indiana or are they from another part of the United States? Yeah, they both grew up in Michigan. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, and they, they met there. Um, my mom was in college and my dad was out of college. But um, yeah, so then basically my dad's career kind of moved them around a lot uh, for the first part of their life. And I remember my dad saying, nah, I'll just go out to Wyoming. It's a good stepping stone to maybe some bigger universities, some uh, maybe uh, better research possibilities. But he just loved Wyoming and decided to stay. And I can honestly say I'm glad he did. Wyoming's a great place to grow up. So uh, sibling wise, is it just you, brother, sisters? How's that work out? Yeah, we are four brothers. So I've got oh, two older wow. brothers and one younger brother. So we, oh, wow. uh, we probably could have used a, a, a sister in there somewhere. <laughs> it would have helped us a lot. I am the only boy and then I have three sisters. Okay. <laughs> They're older and one that's younger, one stepsister, but yeah, one's younger. So I, every once in a while, I was like, I wish I had a brother in there, but actually 
I'm glad I didn't because I saw how brothers acted with each other sometimes. Got a little violent. Uh, and then uh, taking of each other's stuff. I never really had to worry about that. My little sister kind of wore my clothes later on in life, but not initially. But like I never had to like share anything because she was into totally different things than I was. So I'm glad I didn't have any brothers, I guess. Um, but I was the only one shoveling snow, picking mm -hmm. up dog, doing all that, that gruntly work. And yeah. so uh, I, I, I missed having a brother in those aspects, mowing the lawn and such. So what are the age differences between your siblings? Uh, Trey's about, um, he's about six years older than me and Tim's about, uh, he's a little, le a little less than five. And then Joe is about a year, about two years younger than me. Nice. So were you guys like a pack of, of Dunham's or did you each individually kind of do your own thing? Uh, how did, how did you guys roll around in public? Uh, well, we, I feel like we're, we're pretty close, yeah. um, for American standards. Okay. Uh, but I, I, but really we were kind of also pretty individualistic and we kind of did our own thing and, um, but we definitely loved each other, but, uh, maybe not as tight as I, I would wish we would have been, but. With, well, my older sister is six years older than me. So there was some, some definitely distance there and, I lived a lot of, in her shadow a lot, at least when I lived out in Oregon. And then we moved to Laramie, similar situation. University of Wyoming brought us here. Uh, my stepdad got, got a job here. And uh, it was interesting because there was a long time I spent my life trying to get out of that shadow. And so maybe I distanced myself from my sister. But then moving in, living in Laramie, I had my own life. Uh, she never went to high school. She never was known. She was the original rude, by the way. Uh, a coach called her rude first. It was a track coach for her and a football coach for me. That was out in Oregon. Then I moved here to Laramie. Don't say anybody. I don't say, hey, call me rude. It just works out later uh, in <laughs> high school that people just start calling me rude again. So, yeah, she was the original one. She brings it up all the time and I always tell her, yeah, but I made it famous. So <laughs> she kind of giggles to that one. And she has a different last name now. So, um, mm -hmm. Did you find you have, living in the shadows of your brothers was a little, a little difficult sometimes? Uh, a little bit. Both my brothers were really um, good at sports and they did well in school. So there's a, some high expectations for me. And um, yeah, but I always really looked up to my brothers and just kind of imitated them. And uh, they were pretty good to me. So uh, we had a, considering the age gap, we had good relationships. So as a kid, like, what were you into, like, in elementary school and stuff? Were you a good student? Were you playing tons of sports? Were you playing Dungeons and Dragons? What, like, what was your thing? Yeah, I was not a good student at all. Um, but my dad was a university professor, and he really valued education. And so he, he said, well, once we got into junior high, he said, if, if you don't make the honor roll, you're grounded. So that was wow. his that was like the low standard for him was the honor roll, which, so I remember every, every, at the end of every quarter, I was like adding up my points to see if I was going to make it or not. And that's when I would start studying like the last couple of weeks oh, of, of class. So that, that really wasn't something that interests me growing up. I was more into sports. I, I love uh, just being active and played football when I was a kid and basketball and wrestled when I was a kid. Yeah, I was not good in, in education at all either. And I come from educators too. 
Like my stepdad, he taught my stepmom and step and dad are teachers. I had my stepmom as a teacher eventually. I mean, she was my dad's girlfriend at the time, but, and they tried to push me. I was just not there academically. I was also felt I was a step behind because I'm left-handed and I didn't know any left-handed people. So I had to mirror everyone. And my mom was just adamant about not letting them try to make me a right-hander, which I'm glad today. Um, I do everything left-handed very, very, maybe I can putt and I can kind of hit a baseball right-handed, but otherwise very dominant left-handed, but mirroring people when I wrote really was difficult. Spelling was difficult. Everything was just a step behind for a long time in my life because I spent my life just mirroring what other people did. And so I didn't get the good grades and probably until high school where um, I kind of was like, oh, I'm in classes. I guess they were easier classes, you know, like the P for life and advanced sports stuff. Uh, I mean, I was also into like marketing and and by then, and I was kind of figuring out how to be a better student by that point. I didn't have that. I was grounded if I didn't make the honor roll hanging over my head. Um, I I don't know if that would have motivated. I just spent a lot of time grounded or maybe I would have pulled it together. Um, But yeah, I understand as most kids are procrastinate and wait till the end to get it done. I think like sixth grade, I was just like, I'm not doing any schoolwork. I think that was just my attitude of life was like, I'm not doing any schoolwork, but I'll do sports and all that stuff. But it definitely hurt me later on. Like the next year being in classes, I was a lot, I was more smart for, I shouldn't have been in those classes, but I screwed around too much. Um, so were you one of those kids also played soccer too and wrestled and all that, or it was just baseball? Did you get into that? Yeah, too? I did play baseball. I wrestled a little bit or I played soccer until they moved up to the big field at scout okay. field. Yeah. And then I'm like, this is just way too much running. <laughs> I bailed. I was a little lazy, I guess. It is. It, I, I played it. I could, I had a pretty strong leg and I could kick the field. Like I kick distance. So they either put me a goalie or forward. And so I always tell this story too, is I played soccer till sixth grade. And I was like, I'm going to stay home and watch cartoons. Like that was, that was a thing. And it didn't uh, plan out because I wrestled. And it was terrible. I was like, why did I wrestle? I really didn't enjoy wrestling. I did it for way too many years. And I probably thought I should have. Um, I thought it was like probably the sport to do. Later on, I got into downhill skiing and enjoyed that a whole lot more than rolling around with the nether sweaty guy on the ground. Kudos to those wrestlers that do it. I'm not trying to get my ass kicked here. Uh, kudos, but it just wasn't my sport to get into. Uh, so growing up, Laramie Brothers, you know, here okay student but you're getting grounded did you get grounded very often because you're great no no I, I always just pulled it off but okay. Joe was grounded a few times my youngest brother yeah yeah well it's always the baby that gets away I'm surprised he got grounded usually yeah. the baby the bunch gets away with the most I find that out he definitely got away with more than I did but I think he got grounded a few times I think yeah. most of the senior year is grounded most of his what yeah, most of his senior year but he would be grounded but he would still go out I don't he just see I'm yeah. telling you, the baby of the bunch always gets away with the most. Luckily, I, you know, weren't the oldest, so you didn't have to blaze all the trails. Right. Blaze the oldest, so he had to blaze all the trails for everybody. You know, right. probably had the, where the strictness came down on, and then it was you and the other brother. But, yeah, the baby gets away with the most. So once, once they started leaving the house, like, what, what, what did you start getting into? How was high school for you? here in Laramie, Wyoming. Yeah, high school, <clears throat> for me, high, yeah, high school was 
Um, well, I guess <clears throat> high school really changed for me, Justin, because when I was um, when I was finishing my eighth grade year, my family moved to Budapest, Hungary, and we lived a year in Budapest. And um, I didn't go to school that year, so I skipped a year in school. I didn't skip a year; I just didn't go to school for a year. So when I came back, the year I was in Budapest, all my friends were in ninth grade. And I don't know if it's still the same in Laramie, but that was still junior high. It wasn't high school. I think it's and changed now. Yeah, that might have changed by now. Um, so all my friends, the year I was in Budapest, were in ninth grade. When I came home, they had all gone on to high school, and I was still in junior high doing ninth grade. And I don't know if you remember junior high or, you know, middle school. You don't, you don't even look at the people who are younger than you. You're younger than you. They're like not people you associate with. So it was really almost like coming to a whole new town. All my friends were gone and, you know, I had to make all new friends. Um, so when I went it, so that ninth grade year and the years following, I became a lot better student. Um, I spent a lot of time studying and then the rest of my time was really playing sports and mainly football. That's where I found a lot of my identity, I think, in football and in, in my, my academics. Yeah, I, I moved to Laramie in eighth grade, like the beginning of eighth grade. So it was another year in, the, in middle, well, I was in middle school in Oregon and, and then coming to junior high here. So it was another year in that middle area ground where I was like, wow, I was ready to rule the school. And now I'm back in the middle again. Um, and I came from a big pond, like a suburb of Portland, Oregon, to this little small pond of Laramie, Wyoming. It was interesting to see how fads and fashions hit Laramie, Wyoming and, and what I was into coming from the West Coast and everything. I was not a big fan of Laramie at all until uh, I was in high school. Definitely probably my senior year where, yeah, I established a lot of my identity from sports and was president of DECA and stuff like that, where my senior year was great. It made me go, hmm. Wyoming's not so bad, but I'm still getting out of here because I did everything I could. Like I, I applied at other schools. I got recruited and everything, but yet ended up going to the University of Wyoming um, as kind of, well, it's here. It's affordable. I know what's up and everything. So, and you only had to have a high school diploma from the state of Wyoming. They've upped their enrollment now a little bit, like their restrictions on how to get in, but you only had to have that to go here. So it was easy to apply and get in. Uh, but yeah, I wasn't, a, I wasn't always, didn't always love Laramie, even though I've lived here now, 18 years now, again, after I moved away and came back. Um, yeah. So you, you get into high school and now you're with a whole new grade. So you we were used to those kids and, and playing on their teams and they became probably some of your better friends. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it was really a blessing to me because I was kind of going down definitely some wrong wrong roads in with my old grade and the guys I was hanging out with there they kind of ended up getting into a lot of stuff that wasn't super healthy drugs and stuff and I was always kind of thankful that that I had that year even though it's probably one of the hardest years of my life um you know eighth grade is just a super awkward time and I was living in you know at that time a communist country couldn't speak Hungarian like just super isolated um, the time when you kind of want to break away from your parents. And uh, it was, uh, um, I don't know, it was it was a real blessing to come back to kind of my new grade and my new Laramie. And 
and uh, there was just I made some really good friends, some some guys who were had a lot uh, better goals in life, and to kind of have that to motivate me was was really a big influence in my life, and uh, yeah, I was, I was really thankful for that that hard year in in Budapest. So, like myself, you played football for uh, John D. Ty Jr. Uh, mm-hmm. And you played in our in the Laramie offense, and you went to football camp. Mm-hmm. Tell tell the listeners about football camp. I'll fill in some holes where I can. <laughs> yeah, football camp is a little bit. Um, it's an epic experience, I guess. It's uh, it's something that you would uh, dread. <laughs> it was a. Uh, it was something that you just had to do if you wanted to play football. And um, at the time, we'd go up to Guernsey, Wyoming, and they had, I don't know if it was an ROTC or it was some type of military installment. And they had these old metal, like, kind of barracks that they they were like, they had to have been like World War II barracks. <laughs> they were just like yeah. corrugated steel in a half circle with a concrete slab and the Guernsey sun just beating down on those things and uh, for the rest of the world it probably wasn't that hot but for us it seemed like a million degrees and uh you'd have I, I, we, we had like three a days and there's just the field was just dirt and thistles so oh, yeah. if you tackled you'd have just thistles all over you and I remember having to um I remember having to get up like I don't know 5 30 or 6 in the morning and you put on your ankle weights and you had to go run a couple miles and a football player does not want to run a couple miles. And um, honestly, Mr. Deep I don't know what good running miles does for us, but uh, it was just to make us tough. And, um, and one thing that Guernsey did, even though it was a pretty miserable experience is it it kind of bound us together and um, it made us a team. It made us um, respect each other. Uh, for the people who were able to go through it and suffer through it. And um, it's kind of where you found out who you could rely on in a tough game, who was going to push through the pain and the difficulty and who was just kind of winced to one side and maybe not somebody you could, could count on. So it was a horrible, horrible experience, but Dita knew what he was doing, taking us up there. Yeah, uh, we didn't have to wear ankle weights till our junior and senior year. They gave, we got some reprieve. That's right. That's that right. Sophomore year, uh, I was talking to uh, Miss G at uh, Coach D Ty's funeral mm-hmm. and or the the reception afterwards, and she told me that players would hollow out their ankle weights and put cotton in, and then do do practices everything. And then when they turned them in, they put the sand back in. And I was like, genius, genius idea. I mean, but the ankle weights, we, we all had similar haircuts. You couldn't get a helmet until you had a football haircut. I hold up quote hands here. Uh, Basically almost a shaved head. Um, You couldn't get it. So we all looked the same. We had huge, huge calves from our ankle weights, uh, buzzed heads, um, tan lines, on the back right. of our legs from football pants, probably sunburned. And so if we were wearing shorts, you definitely could tell like if it was probably five football players walking together. Cause we all looked about, we ranged in probably size a little bit. Not, cool. not, uh, cool. not a good look. Um, <laughs> it definitely, I understood after the fact why we did so much running is because we had to have endurance. Cause 
most likely you were probably going to play both sides of the ball and, and you had to be able to push through that kind of pain. Like I watch all these guys that just play offense or defense. And I was like, wow, that was like, I did it in all-star games eventually after my season was done. And I was so bored on the sidelines. Yeah. Because I was only playing one side of the ball. I didn't know how to give it all on one side of the ball. Like usually kind of held it together so I could play defense too. I remember after my first game my senior year uh, playing ball sides, I barely could move the next day because I went and I just killed it all the time. And I was like, all right, you got to figure out not to be in pain after every game. Like, and not like I let up, but just had to save a little energy. Uh, luckily they would pull me out in different scenarios. I didn't do special teams all that much. And, uh, but it was, it, yeah, you had to be, you had to be in shape because you're playing both sides of the ball. And we ran an offense that was just basic, but it won. And people are, people probably don't even see this this day. Notre Dame lines up with it very often, some very times, two tight ends, three running backs, you fake to everybody, mostly running it. Um, we played in a dark, dark lit field with maroon <laughs> jerseys. They're kind of brown. And we all looked the same. We knew how to gain, D-Tie knew how to game the system. And, but we won. We won. And I tell the kids today, they go to Laramie High School. We won. You have some nice jerseys. So you should go to football camp and you should run on different offense. Yeah. The genius about uh, D-Tie's offense is that you, you never knew how the ball. Yeah. So if you were on defense, you had to tack, you had to tackle everybody. And it wasn't now, it wasn't like nowadays where you just look and see, Oh, where's the ball? I'm going to go to the ball. You had to tackle everybody. So if one person missed a tackle, then it was a huge game. Um and so you had to be really disciplined on defense or else you you couldn't beat us. There were so many fakes that as a lineman, as I'd be pulling, you'd want, I could watch linebackers or corners, eyes get caught up in the fakes. And by the time they knew I was coming, it was game over. Take it to the house, touchdown time. Like if they weren't, if they weren't disciplined, yeah, it was easy pickings for those guys. I watched so many corners just get down. When they saw <laughs> me coming around the corner, they was like, no, 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 no. And I was like, thanks. Linebackers gave me a little more of a a fight here and there, but you usually catch them off guard because it was just like their head would be caught in the hole, Mm. then it would be going around the end. And so, yeah, I was, uh, I ended up coaching it later. I coached the fifth and sixth grade football. So I learned a lot more about the offense, but I knew where it was going, like as a lineman every time, what we were doing, what was going on. Same with defense. Uh, I was, I always say linemen are some of the most educated dudes on the field. And they don't get paid like they sh- like they should, but that's, that's a different story. But yes, it was it was fun to play football, and I had a good time. And not everyone uh, stayed with it in football. And you know, we lost not lost friends, but teammates that just would quit along the way. Like I remember starting with football with 20, 30 guys, and then in my senior year, we had twelve seniors together. I don't know if that was the same case for you guys as well. Yeah, we had we had a pretty strong class. We stayed together, but you always do lose. We did lose some guys along the way. It's it takes a lot of a lot of jerk determination and a lot of commitment, and um, it's definitely not an easy easy thing to do. And so, how did 
playing football translate over into other sports at, at in Laramie for you? Yeah, football was the main sport. That's what yeah. everybody really cared about at Laramie. Um, and uh, I, I also played basketball in in high school, and I also ran track. But they never had the same feeling because there's the nev- there was never football camp. There was never the bonding. There was never like the sacrifice. There was another um, just this feeling that that these guys would do anything you know and they could they could push through some real difficult circumstances um for you um and for the team never felt that way in basketball never track was just a really individualistic sport anyway so um but yeah football was uh where the friendships were made and football was um football is the main sport in Laramie. I, I assume it still is. I don't know. <laughs> uh, pretty good now. They've won some state championships at soccer. Yeah. And, and, and there, I mean, I want to say that is probably a very popular sport right now here in Laramie. Uh, the head coach just quit or got, I don't know if he got fired. I don't, I don't know how it worked out, but they're looking for a new head coach. I don't know if they had yet. Um, I found that out maybe a month ago or so. Um, I don't know how, I mean, it seems like they cycle through a lot of coaches. It's just, that's very um, shocking to me. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, not like the consistency that, that Detai brought with his coaches and such. And so, yeah. And, but I hear from coaches these days, it's just a different game to coach. And what somebody told me is like, you can't even grab by their face mask. And I was like, what? I learned a lot of hard lessons by the face mask or watching other guys get grabbed by the face mask. I was like, ah, I don't want to get put in that position. I'm not going to screw up. So I learned a lot of lessons that way. I don't know if they ever, mine was ever grabbed, but <laughs> yeah, I saw that. And I was like, what, you can't do that. That's crazy. Yeah. And I got jerked so, by the face mask a few times. Yeah. yeah it's not good, but it teaches me an example. Yeah. I, I, it I, you I, up. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, like you hear whole, like I saw a lot of that one. And I don't know if I did that to my players when I coached them. I might have grabbed a face mask, but they were fifth and sixth graders just to get their attention. But I wasn't like yanking or anything like that. Yeah. And so, but yeah, it was, uh, it intimidated a lot of people. And I have a lot of friends that are like, I wish I would have stuck with it, but I was so scared of camp. I was so scared to get my hair cut. And I was like, so was everybody else. But we went through it and we came out the other end winning and champions and and it was just a fun and a lot of great friends i still you know of course have the day i know you do too as well so were you involved in any other activities i was into like drama a little bit in high school like i liked that and marketing as well uh you're getting good grades so we're like were there any honors activities that you're into um well i i guess i was i was i did a lot with my church um and then yeah between those three things i think i was pretty busy between church and school and, and sports. Um, uh, yeah, those, those are the main things for me in, in high school. So once like high school was wrapping up, um, did you, I mean, obviously probably college was the way to go. I'm sure, I'm sure having your dad as professor and starts working in, in upper education uh, was, was the university of Wyoming where you're going to go? Where did you want to go to college? Where did you end up going to college? Um, yeah, well, my dad was pretty, it was pretty much assumed that we would go to college. That was kind of the next step. And, um, but it's, I mean, it's kind of, 
it's a little bit ironic because my dad is a professor. He would always say that, you know, half of my students, they probably shouldn't be here. Like there's, you know, the university isn't really for everyone. Education isn't necessarily for everyone. And it's a little bit of a shame in our, in our culture that we think that um, we put so much value on education. Education is definitely a valuable thing, but we also need electricians and plumbers and um, it's kind of turned into a problem for us since we see yeah. everybody in college. Nobody wants to to work a trade. Um, but that was definitely his his vision for our lives. And um, I didn't have a, uh, a vision that differed significantly to say, well, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so I was pretty on board with that. He did. He didn't want he really wanted us to go to um, a liberal arts type college, which is just a a type of university that forces you to take a lot of classes outside of your major area. Um, and the idea is that you become as well, or just get a little bit of exposure to a lot of different fields. Um, so I went to a little school in Ohio and um, yeah, that was kind of my dad's vision for us. And I didn't go to school right away. I took a year out and I worked um, at a bank there in Laramie for, for the year after I, I graduated which was another horrible year for me because <laughs> all my friends had, you know, gone on to school and um, it was just a really isolating year, but um, it ended up in some ways being a blessing. I was able to save a lot of money that year that I was able to use later in my life, um, which really blessed me, but that was a hard year. And my dad wanted me to do that because he thought uh, that would help me be a little more mature. He saw so many freshmen coming in to um, university and then just kind of waste in their their first year and <laughs> I'm, I don't know that's always a bad thing but um, definitely uh, that's not what he wanted for my life and um, and and I feel like I was a little more mature going into my freshman year and a little more focused on my studies I and I wish you know looking back I was like I wish I would have taken that year off but I would have needed something like structure in my life than just work in bank wherever um i would have needed i always say like i think everybody should either go to the army or like uh there was job corps or there was but like to to get you away from your parents and teach you some skills before you go off and go you can go to trade school you can go to whatever i mean and it'll save you some money go to college yeah i even work at a university and i constantly tell people it's not for everyone because i got into it and i struggled so hard and just how to be a good student and take notes and everything like that. Um, and I watched a lot of people that I was with that I thought were just excellent students just wash out. And I was like, yeah, clearly isn't it for everyone, but they became successful in other ways. Right. They just didn't go to college or they went to back, they went to a trade school or whatever, but education, I think post high school education, trade schools, stuff like that, universities, people should get. I mean, it helps with skills and stuff like that. Plumbers or apprenticeships are good as well. Um, but get going that way. Just don't hate say it, work at Burger King all your life. Those aren't jobs aren't meant to be a lifer job unless you go into as a manager or some sort like that. But once again, you know, education, it, we really get sold here, especially in Laramie, like University of Wyoming is the only way, even though we have a tech school mm. in town too. And so... Uh, I'm not trying to stop money from going into my alma mater and all that and my job, but plenty of people will still keep going, but having them educated about what they're getting into would be helpful too. And maybe a little, you know, 
skills classes beforehand that, you know, pre-college or something beforehand. Mm -hmm. And and then you don't miss out. You're, you're all doing it together. And you don't miss out. Like you took that year off and all your friends are in college having experience, even though you were still in a college town. So you still kind of got that experience. <laughs> uh, you got to see all those people and I'm sure there were lots of parties and stuff going on. Social, social time here in Laramie right after high school uh, was a good time. Uh, I, that's what happened to me. Mm -hmm. I, I had a lot of time on my hands uh, after I didn't do sports as much or wasn't into sports. So I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not playing college sports. What do I do at this time? Oh, sure, you could study. Sure, you could do. No, had a fake ID, got kegs, got into all that. Um, <laughs> great, great times. But like, I look back and go, that's absolutely what I filled my time in with not, hey, maybe I should learn how to be a college student right now. It was more like learn how to be college good time. And so once you got to Ohio, were you ready to dive into that college life and, and, and some parties and, and meet the people? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of an introvert. I'm, I'm a lot more reserved. I'm like, a crazy party guy but um yeah uh the school i went to is a small school um and they definitely enjoyed their parties uh yeah. i played i was the cool thing about going to denison when i went to school was it was a division three school so it wasn't there's was no sports scholarships given okay. so everybody who played sports um uh it was because you know they wanted to it wasn't because they're getting paid to mm. and um, no real, like very, very, very few people from division three, you know, go on to the pros. There's, there's always some, but very few. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's really just guys who just love the game. So I was able to play football at that level. Um, and that was really, that was really fun. Cause it was definitely a step up from high school no doubt about that. And, um, that, what but it was, it, it was. Oh, I played uh, defensive back in college. Yeah, so I really, I really love playing defense. So, um, knocking down balls, but uh, yeah. So, so a lot of my time went into football. Football is really, it's even more time consuming in college because, in like high school, we barely ever watched film. We we never had any like meetings. We didn't have a playbook really. You know, we kind of did, but um, you know, in high school, things are are pretty simple compared to, you know, the modern, the, you know, a more complex college game or even pro game. Uh, so a lot more time studying, a lot more time on field. And, um, and then the studies were, uh, were definitely a challenge for me, uh, keeping on top of my, my studies. So I spent a lot of time, you know, getting hitting the books and, uh, yeah. and hitting the weights and, um, but yeah, it was really, it was a really great experience for me in Ohio. Did you, uh, well, I realized all the time it took college players cause I had college football roommates somewhere around like fourth year college. And I was like, Oh, and I worked in the media. So I interviewed, I saw what was going on all the time. And I was like, wow, I made a good decision not playing. Cause I like my time right now. And they are, it's, you are going to be here, here. They have your time accounted for. And it's even tighter these days than it was with my roommates, I see it and such. And uh, so did you know your major when you went to into school there? Denison, right? Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, I went to Denison. No, I had no idea. <laughs> my interests were kind of all over the place. I thought about, you know, literature. I thought about philosophy. 
uh, I started out physics. Uh, <laughs> those two or those three are like all kind of all over the board. Yeah. Um, but I ended up in biochemistry. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, which which was one of the few majors, you know, that was just really time consuming also because uh, there's so many requirements because uh, you're basically a, it's, it was basically a biology and a chemistry degree together. Um, so, yeah, my, my thinking or my hopes were that I go into medical school. Yeah. Uh, so most people that go to medical school, they go in with a biology degree and medical school is so competitive nowadays that any like little edge you can have is really helpful. So um, they don't see a lot of applications from chemists or from biochemists. So I thought that that would give me a little bit of an edge if I had a, a little bit different expertise going in. Of course, I never did it, but <laughs> oh, I was like, did it help? <laughs> no medical school, but you had a, you got a bachelor's in biochemistry. Yeah, I got a BS in in biochemistry, um, and it was looking back on it, I kind of wish that I'd studied philosophy because um, I'm a little more um, I'm a little more excited by ideas than. Uh, by experiments, I guess you'd say, or just by um, science in general. But um, I was really thankful for those those years of studying science. Is just uh, it's really an interesting field. It's pretty um, just the intricacies of the body, and um, it's 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 so difficult to even fathom how complicated the systems are. And uh, it was really fascinating spending four years studying about those. I didn't know either going into college. I thought it was going to be in marketing because I was DECA, but it's a lot harder than it looks. Um, I thought I'd be a teacher because my whole family, but my dad, the teacher talked me out of it. I was like, and so many people like you'd have been a great teacher. And I was like, yeah, coaching and stuff. Talked to me, really talked me out of it. But my stepdad, who was uh, part of the broadcasting program at the university, uh, just slowly got me in the door like he started me off when I was in high school I would go uh, Saturdays would go and work UW home football games and I'd carry TV equipment for K2 uh, Casper news station back when you had extra equipment that was attached to a camera Mm -hmm. and I'd carry it for their cameraman but it was great because um, as a lineman we didn't get any press so I almost had my own press conferences the next day after playing in football Friday night, Saturday, I would be able to talk to the press in Laramie. Mm-hmm. You'd have like the other team's press and then our guys there. So they'd always ask me questions and stuff. So it was always fun for that, but I never thought I'd be in broadcasting. And then yeah. Sundays I would work on the coaches show and I'd roll in tape. Never thought I'd be in broadcasting. And then uh, my first year of college, he was like, why don't you intern for me? You'll just carry equipment. Most people don't even intern this early in their career in college. Like, and he's like, you'll learn, you'll carry equipment and maybe you'll want to go into broadcast halfway through. I declared, I was like, yes, this is what I want to do. And like, basically the class broadcasting classes were the easiest part of going to college. It's that whole liberal arts thing. The rest of it was more difficult. Like I didn't get, why I had to take a stats class I, until I had like a calm research class. And I was like, oh yes, this makes sense. And I use stats to the day to prove people wrong in a lot of scenarios. And, but yeah, difficult class. Or um, they had a university class, like a 1000 level class and it made you go and do these stuff. But I really enjoy like going to plays and orchestras and 
and stuff like that. So it wasn't, that wasn't difficult, but yeah, it was, he's all these extra classes that I was like, I love them now philosophy being one of them, but it was just too much for me then. Cause they kept on going, why we, we defined love. We were trying to define love, like what it meant. And the professor was just like, okay, why, you know, you get to the next, you're like, Oh, great. You know? And so philosophy at that time was not, not really gelling with my head. Yeah. And now it does. I mean, I understand that stuff now a little more, but, and going to like psychology classes and all these other classes you probably wouldn't have if I just had gone to a TV broadcasting school. Um, but those were definitely the struggle was the side classes and everything. And yeah, I took some extra time going to school, but I had no idea what I wanted to do because I didn't necessarily work one work at a TV station. And it kind of set you up that way. And and I was, I didn't want to work in Denver. I didn't want to go to Casper Cheyenne. So I think I strung out my education probably longer than I needed to. Uh, did you know what you wanted to do once you graduated? Besides, well, you weren't going to med school. <laughs> yeah, my thinking was to go to medical school. Yeah. Um, and, um, but I, I was going to take a year out um, because I, I just wasn't certain that that's, I wasn't 100% sure, I guess, at that point. But yeah. I had an opportunity um to go to Africa uh, for about a year. Well, I, was, I wasn't there a year. I ended up only being there about six months. And um, during that time, uh, I'd taken my MCAT, which is the entrance exam, um, the medical boards or the medical entrance exams. And um, I'd done all right and done as well as I was hoping, but um, uh, just the more I was away from it and the more I thought about it, um, I felt like maybe it wouldn't be the best path for me. Like, <clears throat> especially when I was an undergraduate, it, it took so much of my, my time and it took so much effort for me to do well in my undergraduate classes. And, um, a lot of like my personal, uh, relationships and a lot of like my spiritual part, the spiritual part of my life suffered for that because I'd given so much time to that. And I felt like, what am I going to be like? And, you know, on the other end of seven years of, of more study, which is even more intense than what I've been doing. Um, I didn't, I didn't know that that would be healthy for me. Um, so I, so I started back out when I came back from Africa, I decided uh, not to apply. And I ended up in your hometown. I ended up in Portland. Oh yeah. Rose city. Yeah. yeah. I loved right. it out there. Portland's a cool city. It's weird. It's fun. Um, I thought I'd be there living there now by now in my life. Uh, but I got used to not living in the rain mm -hmm. and I mean, my dad still lives out in that area. I have a lot of family out there and, and stuff in Washington and Oregon. So I go visit, but every time I visit, it's like six days of rain from the seven days I'm there. It's, it really worked on me living in Wyoming. There's just lots of sunshine, but it's really cold, but you still get used to the sun. And, yeah. and then I did, I lived in New York for a little bit and I got four seasons and I was like, well, I don't know about Oregon anymore. I, I like to visit and such, but I've really thought I'd be there by now. I said, I'd be in Laramie five years. And that was uh, 17 years ago. I said that, and now it's going on 18. So mm -hmm. yeah, I've got a great girl and everything. I'm like, well, I'm not going back to Oregon. So what'd you do out in uh, Portland then? Um, that was kind of a transition year um, because I just come back from Africa and Kind of all my plans dissolved a little bit because my plan was to go to medical school. Yeah. And, 
I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I had a friend from college and we're like, well, let's just go out to the West Coast and we'll get jobs and we'll just just live, see what happens. And um, we were, we wanted to go to California, but uh, I had an aunt in Portland and she's like, you can come out, I have a big house, you can stay with me um, till you get settled. And, um, and that was kind of appealing because uh, it was my mom's sister. And I didn't know her that well. I don't, I mean, I really hadn't met her very many times, but I always really liked her. She was really su always such a kind and sweet lady. And, and she had, um, she had two kids and I was really, I thought it would be worth the time to, to get to know my cousins a little bit. So I was kind of excited about that. And we ended up uh, moving out there with her and we just ended up staying with her uh, that whole year. We enjoyed being together so much and uh it was um it was right when that was during 9-11 that's right when when we moved out there 9-11 happened and so like we were we were literally like the next day we're getting up to go look for jobs and that morning was september 11th um so everything kind of just you know sh went to a standstill for a while uh and we ended up uh, just substitute teaching for a year and it was cool because I got a um, as a substitute teacher you, you know you get off at three o'clock you don't really have any responsibilities beyond that and I was able to be a, more of a part of my um, cousin's life I, I helped coach her basketball team and got oh. to know her a lot better and that was a really uh, rewarding year out there in Portland and like you said it's super weird and um Sometimes it's, there's, there's the both extremes. So if you find yourself somewhere in the middle, you'll be able, you'll be pretty happy, but it's a, it's a cool place. It, it definitely uh, is made me a lot of who I am as far as like the arts and uh, accepting of a lot of yeah, the weirdness of life uh, for sure. Uh, and then living in Wyoming brought a whole different aspect to how I am as a person as well. I was living in weirdly and crazy enough, New York, uh, not New York City during 9-11. I was living on Long Island. Oh. I worked at a 24-hour news station called News 12 Long Island. I was a night shift guy, so I was, like, in bed, like, when it all was going down. And I got a phone call from my then wife at the time, now ex-wife, and she's like, a plane ran into the Trade Center. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, like, uh, I'm thinking just, like, you know, those little tiny prop planes, like, nothing, like, what it went down. And so I'm like, oh, man, like, I'm going to get called into work. That was like kind of my, oh, man, I'm going to get called into work. You know, this is going to be a big news story. We covered like snowstorms. I was like, oh, yeah. you know, from Wyoming covering snowstorms was just crazy to me. <laughs> and so I turn on TV just to catch that second plane. And that's one of the, you know, huge jets. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, that's when the phone did ring from work and it said, hold tight. You're probably going to have to come in. I did not have to go in on that day. But it was something crazy, like 14, 15, 16 days straight of work I had ahead of me, uh, ranging from everything from talking to the survivors from the Trade Center to um, they had the anthrax scares. It was working in news never was a dull moment. I'll say uh, my that was probably my mom called, I think, and was like, move back to Wyoming now. Like she was like, that's enough. And she had heard some of my crazy ass news stories already. That I told so uh, I probably started thinking about it then I ended up back in Laramie in 2003 
few years later, but it definitely shocked my system. And I, I don't really, um, I can talk about it, but I don't like watch movies about it. I don't watch specials about it. So it's a, um, living it was a different story. And I didn't, wasn't from there. So I didn't have know a lot of people that were actually in the trade centers. Um, but I knew friends and family that had those people there. Uh, we had a, a uh, one of our photogs or videographers, uh, he moonlighted with us because he worked for the NYPD as their video department. So he was last seen running into the trade centers and didn't make it out. I mean, doing his job and everything. And so that was probably the closest to, to home that it hit us or to hit me because like, just hanging out with him, cracking jokes and stuff. Typical like New York police officer, like what you would envision them to be. He was that guy, uh, pretty funny and such. And, uh, but that was it for me. And so, I, I mean, lots of other people had, you know, moms, dads and everything in there. And it was, it was sad. And yes, it was a difficult process and it shook the world. I didn't realize it shook everybody else as much until I was flying back to Wyoming. I was coming back for a football game the 1st of October. And it was an easy day to fly. Safe to say nobody was flying right about then. And I was, they weren't really looking for people that looked like me at the time. So I kind of flew through security, but I got here and I saw all these safety precautions that they were going on security precautions. And I was like, Oh yeah, this was an American thing. Not just a New York thing. I was so focused in on that. My world there, I didn't realize the rest of the, the, the United States was hurting as well. And so I'm sure they had some, you know, security precautions out there in Portland that came into effect for the yeah. city. You know, it was like, what will we be next? I mean, that was probably a big thought yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, it was a crazy time in history. I've heard a, I've heard a few people lately try to make some comparisons between the attack on the Capitol these last weeks and and 9/11, but it seems overblown a little bit. It was, it was a crazy time. Yeah, I, I couldn't connect the dots. That'd be a, that'd be a difficult yeah. uh, conspiracy path to dive down. And I, I really when when the when the towers were attacked and everything, I started looking into like why, how could this happen, mm-hmm. and it led me down some some definitely some rabbit holes of just some nonsense stuff. So, uh, but yeah, I was just like, how does this happen to us? And why wasn't these? Why were our planes there? You know, why don't we have our jets up and all that? Stuff? Mm-hmm. And so, and then you get to read public record and what, you know, the calls and stuff were made and it was unfortunate how it went down and everything. Um, but yeah, the cat tax on the Capitol, such a different story. Yeah. <laughs> so after a year, you know, getting to know your cousins, your aunts, your teaching, um, you're like, okay, I'm going to leave Portland. Where do you, where do you go from there? Yeah. Well, so I've been there a year um, and I knew it was, it was just going to be um, a year at least in my aunt's house. I, ne- I needed to move forward and, and find something new. Um, but I still, I still didn't have a lot of clarity on, on what I wanted to do. And, um, and I was kind of struggling a little bit with that. And um, also just, um, I just had, I just had some, uh, some pretty troubling like spiritual questions about God and about life and about meaning, about reality. And those are the things that kind of occupy my mind more than anything else, more than like, well, what am I going to, what am I going to eat? And, or what am I going to put on? And uh, I traveled a lot as a kid um, when I was 
when I was five, five years old, my family moved to Papua New Guinea, which is a little island north of Australia. We lived there for a year. And then I mentioned we were in Budapest when I was in eighth grade. Um, and um, after my, I guess after my freshman year in college, it took another year of absence and I went to Papua New Guinea again for another year. So I, I had traveled a lot and I'd seen how the world lived, especially um, Papua New Guinea is almost stone age. Um, you know, the people, they don't have anything. They may have one, one pair of clothes or, um, I remember I thought it was so funny. Like they would, if, if you had a, a pair of boots, it was, um, you know, it was a real status symbol. It was really showed that you had, I mean, it was like bringing out the bling if you had, if you had a pair of boots. And so we'd be walking, you know, down these jungle trails and they would have their boots on. But then when they got to the river or the mud, they'd take their boots off to go across the river because they didn't want to get their boots wet. And um, I would think that's when you're supposed to put your boots on when you go across the river. But um, I think just spending uh, so much time traveling and seeing how a lot of the world lives uh, made me one, appreciate all the things that we have and all the um, amazing opportunities and blessings we have as Americans. And just the um, just the abundance that we have, um, but I also learned that you can live without that abundance, and you can be completely happy. Um, and so, I, so I think maybe partly because of that, I wasn't I wasn't so concerned about uh, my career or about I wasn't laser focused in on that. Um, but I, I was I was concerned about um, some, some spiritual questions I had, and I just felt really distracted. I just felt like every time, if, if I'm not working, I'm watching TV. If I'm not watching TV, I'm going out with, you know, with friends or like, there's just never time to be quiet. There's never time to, uh, to think or to pray or to, uh, kind of spend time reading and, and focusing on some, some more important issues in my life. So, so my big plan, <laughs> I, I just, I, I grabbed my backpack and I filled it up with some books and with some, with some, uh, with some clothes. And I had a, I had a kind of a tent. <laughs> it was like a tent fly with one tent pole. And I just walked up into the Cascades and uh, I walked out of my aunt's house and walked up into the mountains. And I started following the Pacific Crest Trail, um, which is just, amazing it's just beautiful and i just started following it south and i loved it it was amazing i spent the whole well i left in august so i only had a, about a month a month and a half two months before it started getting cold <clears throat> and the pacific crest trail for those of you who don't know it's it's this trail that runs from i i'm pretty sure i don't know if it runs up into canada but it at least runs from the canadian border um along you know, that whole spine of mountains that are the Rockies and the Cascades all the way down to the Mexican border. And it's one continuous trail and it's maintained by the parks and some of it's private property, but it's all pretty well maintained. And people walk it every year. It's like, you need three months to walk it. It's like, I don't know, two or 3,000 miles. It's a long ways. Um, it's pretty, it can be pretty grueling. Um, it's a lot, it's a lot of altitude. So you're up pretty high. So once, um, 
once it gets cold and the snow starts falling, you can't see the trail. It's, it can get kind of dangerous, but um, that first couple months is just, it's just, you, you know what Oregon's like. It's just beautiful. It's just really spectacular. And just being up there and not having any, not having any schedule, um, just waking up when with the sun and doing my reading and then walking for a while. And when I got tired, I'd stop and, and read some more or take a break, take a nap and, and meet people on the trail and be able to talk to them. It was, it was just really a fascinating time. And it was a really important time for me, especially coming out of college and kind of deciding what my values, gonna, values were going to be and, and what was going to be important to me. And, um, so that, that was, I didn't really have any plan, but I, I decided, well, I'm going to go walk for a while. I was going to go on a walkabout, I guess, or a pilgrimage maybe is a better, um, a better um, analogy. Well, uh, walkabout, yeah, or like uh, Forrest Gump, but you walked it out. You instead of running it out, you walked it out. I walked it I, out. Yeah, I think, I, I think a lot of people need that in life, um, or, or some sort of quiet brain time, mm. and. and and yeah, because I'm like, man, I'm a I'm a media merchant. I sling that stuff that clogs up your brain. Or at least I used to. Now I work in education, education and such. But like, I love TV and broadcast and all that stuff. But I also love to sit in silence. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yeah, and medit- and learning how to meditate that came later, so much later in life to calm down your head and such. And so, but it's fascinating how you figured this out sometime in your 20s maybe not figured it out you're just like i'm just gonna go looking for answers and they look this trail seems might have them and uh so you went out there uh, and so you went three months of walking and did you make it all the way down mexico uh well i did but it took more than three months okay, okay. <laughs> yeah so i was i was up in the pacific crest trail probably about three months and then um it started snowing and I had to come down off the trails and I was just enjoying the time and, and I was enjoying the people I was meeting and I was enjoying the experiences I was having. And uh, my dad didn't love it, but I, I saw value in it. Um, a lot of people didn't see value in it, but a lot of people did see value in it. And, and for me, it held a lot of value. So I just kept going and, um, you know, I spent time in, in homeless shelters and, um, ate, ate out of the trash can, slept on the street. Um, I didn't spend a lot of time in the cities because they're dangerous, but uh, I would. I walked across. Um, I walked across uh, uh, the southern part of the states, you know, through Nevada and through New Mexico and into Texas. And it's just really, it's a desolate part of the United States, but it's just a really beautiful part of the states. And um, there's something about the bigness. And maybe it's because I'm from Wyoming and and I need that bigness, being able to see 50 miles. I remember going to school in Ohio and, and there's trees everywhere. I just felt claustrophobic. I'm like, I can't see anything. I'm, <laughs> I'm drowning here in these trees. Um, but being in, this, in, the, in the Southwest, I just love uh, the bigness of it. And uh, just, um, I don't know, it, it just empties the mind maybe and, and uh, makes it... Um, kind of prepares the mind to, to think about eternal things and big things. And, um, and there's just a wonder that is accompanied by all that beauty. And, and I, I loved it. And I walked down, it took me about a year to get to the Mexican border. Um, and from there, I really kind of 
stopped and took stock and and really asked myself, is this do I do I need to keep doing this? Is this something that that I want to keep doing? Do I want to you know stop and do something else? Do I want to keep walking into the United States or or the other option was do I want to go down into Mexico? <clears throat> and I don't know if I can recreate my thinking at the time, but my desire was to go into Latin America, to go into Mexico, even though I didn't speak Spanish, <laughs> even though I didn't like spicy food, even though I didn't know anything about the culture. Like there's all these reasons not to go in Mexico, but something was pulling me down there. Um, it was, yeah, I, I think I stopped at the border for three or four months and uh, eventually I decided to cross the border, went into Mexico and uh, walked for about, I think walked for about a month and I really, I didn't like it at all. It was so isolating. Um, the beautiful thing about walking is if you walk, you're kind of a weirdo. Like if you see somebody walking, it's like, what's wrong? Did his car break down? <laughs> is he, you know, is he poor because he can't afford a car? Uh, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of responsibility in the United States to get a job, make three or $4,000 and buy a cheap car. So if you don't have a car, like, and you can't even swing that, like me, what's wrong with this guy? You know, or, or, you know, a lot of, you know, is he homeless? Does he have addiction problems? Like those are kind of, the, those are kind of how people think about you if they see you walking. But as soon as you go into Mexico, it's totally different because it, it's a whole, it's a totally different um, level of economic uh, power that you need in order to buy a vehicle. So everyone's walking. So, um, so I, I was really in contact with people a lot more even than in the United States because everybody walks everywhere. And, but I couldn't speak Spanish. And so even though I was, I was really longing this, um, this, uh, this ability to kind of um, learn about the Mexicans, but unable to, to speak with them. So it was really, really frustrating. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what would have happened um, if I hadn't met this family, but um, um, it was by no plan of my own that I walked through a little village and and I met this family and they invited me for breakfast. You know, I didn't, I knew a few words in Spanish. I was trying to learn. They, they knew a few words in English, but not very many. And, and just through hand signals, they invited me to, to breakfast. And then they invited me to, to rest and to spend the night. <clears throat> and then the son invited me to go milk cows with him in the morning. And then they said, well, our daughter's getting married on Friday. You can't, you can't leave before that. You have to stay for the wedding. And I was like, I just wanted to walk. <laughs> yeah. But I ended up, I ended up staying and uh, I was the only one in the village with a camera. So I became the official uh, wedding photographer and after that they just kind of adopted me and they gave me a they gave me a, a little room and a bed and they gave me food and clothes and I worked uh, in the fields with them with their cattle and milk cows and cut sugar cane and harvested chili peppers and onions and whatever they did I just did and and slowly um, learned Spanish and I stayed in that village uh, for about a year um, and that was just that was that was a real uh, blessing just I mean it 
think about the amount, the number of times that you've been invited into a stranger's home in the United States. Like it's a rarity. Um, and zero. <laughs> like zero, I can't think of it right now. Strange. Yeah, I mean, you don't, you barely. It's hard to get invited into your friend's house. Like, and but when you go into somebody's house, I mean, that's a kind of an intimate space. Like, you get to see who they are and how they live and what's important to them. You know, if they're a hoarder, if they're OCD, you know, what they eat. Like, it's kind of an intimate place to be inside somebody's home, and usually that's just reserved for friends. And so. For them to take me, a stranger, um, and bring me into their home, it felt like a real, a real special thing, um, just to see how they lived and see, you know, what they ate and what their life was like. And there were a lot of challenges to that for me, um, beyond just learning Spanish. But um, it was just an enriching time for my life. Um, and at the end of at the end of one year, um, I started talking about continuing south um the same way i'd come i just thought i would just keep walking <clears throat> i thought i was a little more equipped to walk through mexico now that i spoke some spanish and so i was excited for that experience but also a little scared because um it's a vulnerable place to be outside and uh mexico i mean it has its dangers just like you know any you know like you walk through a big city in you know you walk through new york city you can't just walk anywhere you want. There's some places that are, you know, you, you don't go during the nighttime or you don't go during the day sometimes. And it's the same anywhere in the world. So there was, there's definitely fear. Um, there was fear involved there. And, um, but a real excitement to, to discover and um, real curiosity about the people and the place. And um, it, was, it was an exciting time. And so I started talking about wanting to leave and, and my family, um, they felt like they needed to pay me for the year that I had worked for them. And because I was a laborer, I did a lot of work and uh, it wasn't like I was just a helper. I, I would, I would at times milk the cows by myself and 30 cows and bring the milk to market and sell it and bring the money back to the, the patriarch. And um, if I wasn't there, they would have to hire somebody to do that work. Um, so it wasn't, it, it was a, it was a matter of justice, definitely, that they thought, well, we owe you something for this time. And I would tell them, no, you, you guys kept me in food, you kept me in clothes, and, um, and you treated me like a son. I don't, I don't need anything. And they're like, well, if you were our son, we would still pay you. <laughs> and so, but I, and I would say, well, you know, if I really wanted to make money, I could just, you know, here in Mexico, I make $10 a day, working eight hours a day. Um, go to America, you can make that in an hour. I really wanted to make money I wouldn't be here yeah um so in the end we kind of compromised I guess <laughs> and uh the um the patriarch he came to me Nayo and he gave me some a pair of pants and he gave me a pair of boots which were really nice but not good for walking and um and he gave me a donkey oh which is a, maybe the strangest gift I've received <laughs> um and his um, his thinking is that the donkey is a pack animal. I'd I'd come into their village, you know, with my with my backpack, and so now the donkey could carry my my stuff, and I could just walk without being burdened. And that was a scary gift because I didn't know how to take care of a donkey. I didn't know 
um, what a donkey needed. And I didn't know how to work with a donkey, but I spent a few months um, getting to know and, and, you know, kind of getting used to Judas was what I named my donkey. <laughs> yeah. Good old Judas. Yeah. yeah. And he, I just, I threw my stuff on his back and we started walking south. We just went from village to village. And I always thought of Judas as a, a special gift because, um, <clears throat> because uh, he, he took the burden off my shoulders. He, he did most of the work, the hard work. Walking, you know, when you're young, walking is, you can walk all day. It's, it's pleasurable, especially when you're seeing new things. And, but if you have to carry your life on your back, it's a lot less fun. If you have to carry 70 or 80 pounds, you know, of food and water, you would be surprised how many things you need if you're going to live outside. Um, even if you have, only have like one shirt and one pair of pants, you still need something for the cold. You need something for the wet. You need something to sleep in. You need something to sleep under. You need a knife. You need a sewing kit. You need, you know, medicines. It, it, the list goes, there's a lot of things that you need and you don't always get to ch choose all those things because on top of that, you need a lot of water and you need food and it can get really heavy really quickly. But with a donkey, <clears throat> I could take pretty much anything I wanted and, and I could just walk uh, unburdened. And that was what I thought was the real blessing of having a donkey. But it turned out that uh, the blessing of having Judas was that, um, well, it's hard for us to understand because we, we live so separated from that point in history when our forefathers worked with animals. Like my, my grandfather was a, was a farmer and, but, and he had some animals and I think he had worked with some animals at some point, um, but he had never plowed his field with an, anim with an animal. He had never, you know, he had never used oxen to, to plow a field. Um, you'd have to go back even another generation, probably, you know, my great grandfather, who I never knew um, to find people who had probably maybe worked with animals. I mean, we're so far removed when people, I mean, we have, everybody has pets, you know, people have horses and they ride them, but nobody works with, how many people work with their horses? It, it's very few. In Wyoming, you can find some people, you know, that might, but they all use four-wheelers now. They don't use horses anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we're really removed, but in, in, in Latin America, that distance between when people worked with animals is very, very small. And, you know, everybody knows somebody who, who works or at least their grandparents worked with, worked with animals and probably their parents worked with animals and, you know, and not like, not like, oh, we're going for a ride into town. It's like, oh, he's carrying my hundred pounds of sack of potatoes that I need to get to market kind of thing. Um, so when people, when people saw me working with an animal, walking with an animal, it was just like this icebreaker. It was just like this point of connection. It's like, I understand that. I don't understand the white guy, but I understand the donkey. And so people would approach me and um, they, yeah, they wouldn't, they wouldn't view me. Like if you see a guy on the side of the highway, you know, with a backpack, you're, a, you know, a, a few assumptions are going to come to your mind, whether they're true or not. Um, you know, maybe they're homeless or maybe they have uh, certain problems. Um, and that's probably how they would view me if I was just walking with a backpack. But when you have an animal, when you have an animal that you're working with, then they view you as, oh, that must be, he must be doing something normal, <laughs> you know, he must be doing work, you know, so um, people were a lot more open to approaching me, and then once we were able to talk, they could see I could speak Spanish, then 
people would invite me into their homes. So, you know, for years when I walked up my, with my donkey, um, people would invite me into their homes and I got to see how they lived and I got to have conversations with them. And, um, I got to meet Latin America. So, um, I guess that's a long answer to your question. But. Oh, no, it's, it was great. And I, we, I, we talked about this before in the past a little bit. Um, it was, it probably gave you some camouflage too, to where you just look like another guy, well, besides white guy on the road, but another guy just with their animal carrying shit to get it on to the next, you know, job site or whatever. And, and we're not going to mess with him, but if you were just some gringo walking down the middle of the road with all your pack, you might get messed with a little bit more uh, with that. But now you just kind of, like I said, a little bit of camouflage fits you in. And, and then it got you invited into people's houses and you can speak Spanish. I learned Spanish, like just proper Queens Spanish growing up here and in classes and such and at the university. And then I went into Tijuana and went, nope, not even close. Um, I understand it a whole lot more than I can speak it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there I could, I was like, all right. And, but I'd been enough around some of my friends and their parents and they spoke some slang that I could eventually catch up. I'm not fluent by any means. Um, but yet when people are talking it, I'll be, uh, I can perk up cause I understand mm-hmm. kind of where their conversation is going. Yeah. 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 It's a really cool thing to be able to speak another language. Um, it feels like a whole world opens up to you because you go into Mexico and it feels like you're, you're there, but you're not, really there because you don't you feel like you're in a bubble you, yeah. you don't really know what's happening you don't know you can see the people's facial expressions but you don't know what they're saying you don't really like language is really a, a path to you know into people's hearts you know it's it's what they're they can express what they're feeling and if you can't make a connection then you can't you can't understand them so as a tourist so many times you can feel really even though you're enjoying so much of the, the culture and taking in so much, there's so much that you're missing because you, you can't speak that language. And when you can, it's like the whole world opens up and there's so many possibilities. It's really, I never thought I'd be able to, to learn a language. I took French in junior high there, me, and then I took German and I just, I hated it. Those were my worst classes and I, I hated language. I thought I could never learn a language. And the only reason I learned is because I was forced to. <laughs> but well, it was a really beautiful thing, kind of a bucket list kind of thing. That's the best way to learn it, they say, is immerse yourself in the culture. Yeah. If you got the time to learn it that way, yeah. of course. I mean, if you just have a little basics behind you, uh, I know there's probably a lot of fingers and, and hand signs and everything of what was going on. But once you immerse yourself into the language, uh, yeah, into the culture, it, it it's great. You learn a whole lot better that way. And I'm so jealous of like, man, I've left college and I did that. I always talk about it. It was in the movie fight club. There's a scene where he's talking to himself basically in the bathtub. And he's like, you know, I never really knew my dad. And when I asked him things like, well, I finished high school. Now what go to college. Okay. Finish college. Now what? I don't know. Get a job. And then he's like, now what get married. That's what I did. And I needed to walk about because that's not then was not what I wanted. Mm-hmm. My head was not. I mean, I lived in New York for it was an experience. It and definitely changed my life. And I learned a lot of things. And I ended up there because of a summer camp. And so because I, I grew up traveling or all around the state of Oregon, uh, maybe not as international as you, 
Um, but my ex-wife was British, so I went to England a lot. I went to Australia, down to Mexico, Canada and stuff. I enjoy, I want to see America. I still do. Like the point of this podcast when I first started, it was to travel around, see my friends, put a mic in front of them, have them tell the story, not do it on Zoom, but current situations, you know, you got to make do. The first ever interview was done face-to-face. The rest have been on, done on Zoom. But I was like, man, I need to walk about. Or maybe I need to go to school and then go to walk. But it was just like, do this, do this, because I thought it was the next step. It necessarily wasn't what the right step in my life, you know? And so like, not everyone needs to get married, you know, get a job, get married, go to college, right? That's not everybody's plan in life. Some of us need to walk it out with a donkey and everything, you know, to to figure out some things. Those questions, I don't know if you did, but maybe you're at peace with yourself a little more that you did do this. And Mm. so what got you back stateside? Mm. Yeah, well, I walked for about six years with Judas and we walked down to, we walked down all through Central America and um, through most of South America. We went through Venezuela and Colombia and and Ecuador and went through the the Andes and Peru down the old Inca highways and um, down into Ecuador and Paraguay. And then in Brazil, uh, Judas was, it's a complicated story, but he was bit by a snake and, and he died. Oh. And that was a, that was a really traumatic um, moment for me. Uh, it was really hard because I had spent, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, you know, for almost six years with Judas and uh, relied on him so much, not only just to um, kind of endear me and to help me break the ice with people, but because I'm not an outgoing person naturally, like I'm not able just to show up in a town and make friends. Um, it's just not my personality, but Judas would do that for me. And he would, you know, we worked together. I depended on him for work and he depended on me for you know, so many things. And, and I mean, he literally saved my life on many occasions and, and possibly like you were noting earlier, uh, he might've saved my, my hide in a lot of situations just by, um, you know, just by kind of camouflaging me is how, how you put it, because people looked at me and they're like, Oh, that's just a, that's just a guy from the country working with his donkey. It wouldn't, it didn't, it didn't seem out of place. Um, and, I, just, I don't have any doubt that he protected me in a lot of situations like that. And, and to have that just kind of ripped away in one moment was, uh, it was definitely a shock. Uh, it was really, it was really, really traumatic, really hard, but I was in Brazil at the time, uh, Southern Brazil. Um, the Brazilians are amazing people. They were so hospitable and they were so um, kind to me during that time. And they, they just helped me and supported me. And the, the little village that it was a little city where I was kind of about 20 miles outside of the little city, but I had stopped there a couple of days before and had met a lot of people and um, had done actually a few interviews with just local press. And so a lot of people in the city um, had heard about me and had heard about Judas and, and subsequently they had heard that he had died. And so people would, people would come out, you know, 20 miles to where I was and they would bring me food and, um, and water and I just stayed where I just stayed where he died and I, I dug a grave for him and buried him and, uh, 
built the tombstone and I just kind of sat there for about a month and just just kind of thought about what was next and the people were like we'll give you another animal don't worry we'll give you another donkey we'll give you another mule about that uh... <laughs> it was pretty amazing and but every time I go I'd be like okay I'll go and even though my heart wasn't in it um and I'd go look and I'd look at the animal and be like oh, it's not Judas <laughs> it's just as you just can't there's some things you can't replace and um I, I just wasn't ready yet and so the people, they kind of the people in town, they they gave me donations and they bought me a backpack and uh, I put all my I had to cut down on the things I could bring because I'm not nearly as strong as Judas was, and uh, I I had to pack all my stuff again. I was back to square one, <clears throat> like when I had started, and I decided I kind of decided that I didn't I didn't want to stop on on that on that note on such a negative note on on his death. I wanted to. At, the, at that point, my hope was to go through the rest of Brazil, a little bit of Uruguay, across Argentina into Chile. It's a lot of countries, but it, it, was, it was probably another year of walking, which sounds like a lot, but I'd been walking for seven years, so um, it didn't seem like a lot to me. Um, and my plan then was to go home, was to put Judas on a boat and go home. So um, when he died, I decided, well, I'll try to finish what I purposed in my heart and um, put on the backpack and started walking and uh, got to got to Chile and uh, I felt like my heart had healed a lot by that time from the loss and Chile is a really amazing country and the people are really amazing and instead of uh, stopping and when I got into Chile I just turned south and if you've ever seen Chile on a map it's the long skinny one <laughs> and uh, it goes all the way down to the end of the end of the continent and I just followed it all the way down until there wasn't any more any more terra firma and uh, at that point at the end of at the end of the continent I decided yeah I think it's I think it's about time to start a new chapter in my life so so I had so I decided to come home and um, I was looking at plane tickets and I was also looking at motorcycles and then at plane tickets and then I'm like it took me like eight years to get down here. Am I going to go home in one day? <laughs> Am I going to fly that whole distance in one day? You might get a draw. You might have to uh, get out of there slowly. Yeah. That's way too fast. That's way yeah. too fast. So I bought the motorcycle <laughs> yeah. and I started riding back. And um, as I rode back, I go through a little town. I'm like, Oh, I know people in this town. And I stop and I go see them and I thank them for how they had helped me. And I, I told them how my story had ended and, and they'd, inevitably invite me in or they'd invite they'd be like christmas is in a week you have to stay or stay you know stay for a couple more days and um i just I just did that in every little town like not i didn't go the same route that i did when i walked so i wasn't it wasn't like every five minutes i'm coming into a town that knew people but um but i would cross that path every once in a while and um, did you so need a motorcycle yeah, this was on my motorcycle. On the oh, way did back. you name it? Oh, did yeah. I name it? Well, kind of unofficially, I named it La Chilena, which okay. means the Chile, the the Chilean okay. <laughs> one from Chile. Gotcha. <laughs> That's okay. where I bought it. Right. Um, but mostly, I named it that because um, I had a friend in northern Chile, and we would always tease each other. And um, my motorcycle was not a big motorcycle; it was like 125 cc. Okay. 
which if you know anything about motorcycles, is just above a bicycle. <laughs> I could go probably about, if I was going downhill, I could go about 50 miles an hour, but normally I was around 40 or 45 miles an hour, which in South America is perfect because there's no super highways. There's no, you know, like 70 mile an hour highways. It's all like the little back roads um, between towns. And so 40, 45 is about the right speed for that. Um, and I did not have a lot of experience on the motorcycle. I had a lot of terror, but not a lot of experience. So it was good for me to go slow. And um, so I named it La Chilena because in Chile, we would joke how slow everything is. And <laughs> the motorcycle was also slow, but yeah. Uh, so it took me about, took me about three years to get back um, to the States. Cool. So you, you get back to the States, uh, where'd you end up? Uh, well, I hadn't been back for, you know, I really hadn't seen my family for, you know, I, I had, I had seen them a couple times, but I hadn't seen a lot of people, you know, for almost 10 or 11 years. So I kind of did the rounds. I went and saw, um, I went to Wyoming first, um, saw my friends and that were still around in Wyoming. And, and when I rolled into Laramie, I had $200. So that was not enough gas even to get to my next stop. So I had to, I had to work. And uh, thankfully, my dad was in Wyoming at the time, and he owns a bunch of apartments. So he sent me to work repairing uh, things that needed to be repaired and uh, was able to make enough money to, to go see my brother in, in Iowa. And then I went down to Ohio, where I have another brother. And then my oldest brother's in West Virginia. And my oldest brother, he's uh, divorced and he lives, he's kind of a caretaker on a, on a property and he's, uh, he lives alone. So I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know where I was going to stay. He's like, you can come stay with me. Um, so I stayed with him for about a year and then um, just kind of out of the blue through a friend, I got a job uh, uh, working on kind of managing and Kind of supervising a property in outside of Savannah, Georgia, a uh, huge property, like 7,000 acres. And that was supposed to be just like a three, three month gig, summer gig. And what I was doing at the time, I was just working summers and making money to um, not have to work through the winter. And uh, kind of my dream and hope was to, to start writing about my time in South America and writing about Judas and, um, Hopefully someday I'll have something to share with people um, that I'm still working on. <laughs> but so I took this job and uh, supposed to be just three months. It turned into two and a half years and uh, I met a girl down here. And so now the job ended, but I'm still down here and um, still working on my book and um, still don't know what's next. Still, <laughs> I'm just one of those guys who doesn't have a real, uh, real, real clear career path but I've been real thankful for all the things I've been able to experience and see, and I don't regret any of it. Well, you have some real life experience right there. Um, and gosh, yeah. Putting down roots somewhere in Georgia for a couple of years must be, must be interesting. Well, like I, I kind of made a joke about how we got put on lockdown and put in a pandemic and everything. And I was like, Phew. You know, honestly, it actually gave me a moment to sit and think for a little bit, like mm -hmm. about like everything, you know, life goes by pretty fast mm -hmm. and it gave me a, you know, I'm at home. Uh, I didn't always work at home right away. Now I'm back at campus and everything, but I did some 
a month or two sitting at home going, and it gave me time to reflect on a lot of things. And it probably helped me put this podcast together mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that, because I was like, we need a distraction. We need some entertainment. We need these people have some great stories. My friends have some great stories that I want to hear. Um, just meeting people growing up in Oregon, New York. I've interviewed a couple of friends from out there. A lot of people I've met here. And it's just interesting to see these, the path people take. I don't think I've had a person on here that's like, I grew up in Laramie. I stayed in Laramie and I died. In, like they actually right, right. went out and did some stuff. And yeah. so, I mean, that, I'll get to those people eventually. I'm They're sure interesting have, too. Yes, they sure have great stories to tell right there. But I got one last question. We've been going a little bit um, for you and I ask this from everybody. Okay. It's, it's called All My Friends. How'd we meet? Well, it's been a long time, Justin. Yes. Oh, yeah. But um, I think did you graduate. You were a year older than me in school, weren't you? Yeah, I would have been. Yeah. Well, I was in class of 92. Yeah. So you're a couple years ahead of me. Yeah. But I, there was probably when we were in junior high, like yeah. there was probably times where you're right behind me and then you had that year off and then. Right. And that was two years ahead. But yeah, because I mean, I, I, I remember you most from football. We played because I was one of the few uh, and Dita was very reluctant to put a sophomore on the field. <laughs> Uh, with you all and that was terrifying and I got my uh, that's when that's one time I got my face mask yanked around a few times but um, yeah I gotta I gotta play with you all uh, a couple times but I broke my ankle early in the early in the season and um, uh, what was your quarterback's name Nichols Uh, Cody Yeah, Nichols so he he ended up being the DB for you all the rest of the year but I had taken his place um, for the first couple games before I broke my ankle, but um, yeah, that's that's what I remember you from from my sophomore year, first year, and playing deep tie ball. It, I thought it. I couldn't remember what it. I thought it flipped the other way. I thought Cody had started, and then you came on to be a starter. But I forgot about you'd broken your ankle. Yeah, but I remember you being on our defense for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, I didn't think anything about being like that's a first sophomore to play. Like I didn't really phase me. I was like, you were just a good athlete. I was like. <laughs> I'm glad to have you behind me back there. So, you know, in case I can't get to him, you got him. Like, that's all I really thought about. Like, <laughs> Yeah, you. we had a we had a tough team that year. And, um, yeah, uh, Nichols was a great athlete, but he wasn't the fastest guy. Yeah. So, like, DB wasn't probably the best position for him. Um, but the way D-Tie was, he's like, you play both ways. You got to find yeah. out his – so – um, it was a, it was a good fit putting me back there, but he didn't, he didn't like putting in young kids back there because they had to pay their dues first before you got to play. And I kind of, I kind of agree with that, but it was a special situation. So it, it was, it was really special being able to play with the older guys. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was great. I mean, you, you get them every once in a while, the sophomore, you know, the younger guy that, that steps up or it just has unbelievable speed like Cisneros had yeah. was super fast. And if you, yeah. one block and he was gone so he was playing from a sophomore on Bubba he I think he might have started with from a sophomore or just got in a lot um he was in the beginning was pretty aggressive and all that and yeah. then but yeah I didn't like I was kind of getting time in my junior year but my senior year was explosion of like everything came together that year for football yeah um, and it's, it was because of a a track coach um a shot put coach, a female coach 
mm. got me on a weight program yeah. that was so different. And I just took off in the weight room. I was already good at lifting weights or whatever. I just knew that's what you had to do, but I didn't realize I was so strong. And she got me on a program that was amazing. And then the senior year, I don't remember anybody that they put in front of me that I couldn't just push to the side half the time. Mm-hmm. There's some Sheridan guys here and there, but there wasn't, there's a state shot put champ in our last game we played <laughs> in the cold and negative 30. <laughs> I remember that game. Yeah. Everybody should. And, and I, I commend the fans that showed up. I was like, I probably wouldn't have showed up. It was cold and I didn't leave the field. Yeah. But their state shot put champion, that was the first time like I've ever felt somebody actually move me, throw me a little bit. And it was kind of mm-hmm. scary. I was like, holy crap. That didn't yeah. happen very often. State champion. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> pretty good if he's the only one who's throwing you. Yeah. yeah it, well, at first he was going against Joe Mickelson. Right. And that wasn't even like a close of a matchup. Joe was like 20 feet behind me after every play. <laughs> so they're like, you guys got to flip it around. And it was just like two just balls, just start. I mean, there's pitchers and we're just like almost straight up with each other. Yeah. But I mean, he got the best. I mean, they won. So I'm like, he got the best mm-hmm. of me most of those times. And yeah, everybody remembers 30 degree, negative 30 degrees. My gloves broke. I always say that they broke right down the middle. So I was playing most of the game with like snow gloves on. Yeah. I could still grab people, but it wasn't as good as having like real winter, like NFL gloves or something, but we couldn't wear that stuff. Like I hated it. He did. did Anything that was popular or trendy. (laughs) Like I'd have bruised forearms after like summer camp because you couldn't wear any sort of padding or anything, but it made me tougher. It made me tougher. And I never had my senior year because I was handing them out, not getting those bruises. Right. So, but I want to thank you for giving me your time and being on the podcast. Yeah. Justin, thanks for having me on. This was really fun. It was great connecting with you again, too. you heard john and i played football together in high school and during my senior year his sophomore year we had a wednesday night practice after we returned from that football camp we talked about it so we are kind of tired of each other but uh we had another practice and that night the starting offense that i was a part of just was out of it And the scout team was just taking it to us. We couldn't run any plays. It was just a bad night of practice. We started yelling at each other in the huddle. I think one of the running backs told the line to block. And, well, that doesn't go over very well with us linemen. And I think every time a play went south, Dunham was in on that play. I remember thinking, we need to get that guy on the starting defense. If he wasn't already by that moment, He had pretty much earned his spot by lighting up our starting offense. And so he did end up on uh, the defense starting as a sophomore. Yes, and as you heard, he uh, broke his ankle uh, later in the season. Now that night, that Wednesday night practice, the coaches ended up stopping the practice early because we didn't want to be there, and they saw it. Now the scout team never had their way with us again. On to the next episode.